0: Hello, this is Brian from Living in the End Times with Amos and X. As always, thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please be sure to follow us on social media. Give us a favorable rating on the podcast app of your choice, say CastBox or Podcast Republic. And most importantly, support us through Patreon at patreon.com slash endtimespodcast. That's patreo dot com endtimespodcast, one word. And thank you in advance.
1: Tonight with the Crust Brothers covering Bob Dylan's Mrs. Henry. Um, to start this evening, we're going to be discussing my interlocutors' excellent essay. What's it called? About Silkworm's Italian uh, Platinum? A, a juggernaut of jokes.
0: Yes, an uh, oral history of Italian Platinum. So, for the... Oh, the, oh go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, uh, published by popmatters.com if you're interested, dear listener.
1: So check it out for sure. Um, So for the uninitiated, but probably few in this crowd, um, it's about the band Silkworm, which is sort of, I was, uh, is a seminal band for me, even though I sort of was too young to appreciate An idiot not to appreciate your time, as it were, but um, Mm. no, not an idiot, but too young to be able to follow Silkworm as they were emerging. Um, it was throughout the mid to late 90s and then on into the early 2000s until the drummer was tragically killed, uh, by a drunk driver committing suicide in 2006, I believe. Um, five, yeah, five, okay, and uh. Yeah, so I mean, you, you can. I'll let you take it from here to start with, and then I'll sort of mm-hmm. share my own experiences, I suppose.
0: Sure, I appreciate that. And so, the the listener will recall we've we've chatted Silkworm before, I think, at the on our contempt episode where we uh, watched the John luc Godard film because uh, there's a Silkworm song entitled "Contempt" from there. Uh, 2000 record uh, lifestyle in any case so that that group was pretty big for both of us in a lot of ways and so uh f- for a number of reasons their 2002 album um Italian platinum was kind of an an important one for me and some uh, and the, the folks i was hanging out with a lot at the time and i'm um, just you know 20 years after the fact it's 2022 i'm like oh it's you know it's a 20 year anniversary of that record i can't believe it i'm, I'm super old And I thought it'd be interesting to try to do some sort of, uh, I guess, I don't know, oral history of that record, because it seemed in a lot of ways to me different, kind of like, a, I mean, almost a break from some of the stuff they'd been doing before. And I was trying to figure out why for all these years. So I just wanted to try to interview the remaining members of the band and some other folks who contributed to the record and just to get a sense of the recording of it and the songs and how they came out live uh, relative to the recording and just uh, my own experience with that record and the records after that, and so on. And so, yeah, It's it was that the, the essay is an oral history of that record in particular, but it also eventually goes into kind of an analysis or reading of the band sort of throughout the, the scope of their entire career. Um, the kind of working class roots they have in Missoula, Montana, going to Seattle, ultimately to Chicago and just kind of the thing they were trying to do, as it were, as as artists and kind of as sort of people traveling across this these united states and kind of what their music seemed to be uh doing for listeners and for i guess the culture itself and and so on so
1: yeah and i mean i think and in your piece like i'm not gonna quote it um probably much but what was so um like i was saying off mic or off air like uh the level of nuance in like sort of being able to capture the aesthetic was impressive as a reader, both as a fan of silkworm and just a general reader, but it, or so for instance, the, like a lot of the, a lot of what you were honing in on was the sort of this sense of, I guess, how people are forced to kind of occupy this desolate landscape um, economically and like what that actually looks like in the, you know, shards remaining shards of the country, like by the late nineties. And so the way that plays out are these kind of these interesting characters who are not undignified, but are sort of Mm -hmm. forgotten. Like, like people who, like you said, you know, working class people or people who are just dealing with like day to day bullshit, which to me is like sort of this, um, this notion of like, uh, like proletarian in the proper sense of the part of no part. Like, mm. uh, you know, when there's a problem, of course, in leftist politics talking about like when contemporary tanky quote unquote tankies, meaning like i can you be a marxist leninist in the west anymore probably not but people who larp that way will talk about if they talk about it at all the proletariat and that's just supposed to be understood as like an industrial working class or something but when we have like a literally you know post-industrial we occupy this post-industrial society but what that means is not post is in terms of like now everyone has high tech jobs, but a deindustrialized country that also has a tech sector. Um and being forced to like navigate one's way through that with like a complete loss of meaning. Like I, I saw this, mm-hmm. I didn't read the article because it was paywalled, but this New York Times article about how millennials are entering middle age and it's not like what what we were told it was going to be or what we expected because we grew up in a um in this uniquely economically prosperous age which even that's sort of a lie um like millennials are supposedly only the oldest millennial is 41 years old and so I'm not grouping you there but I'm just saying mm-hmm. like the you know, to, to call, to call, like I'm 40 to call me middle-aged is pretty silly. I think like to be middle-aged, you would have had to have like a life and a career. And then you're sort of like, it's waning. Like the idea of a midlife crisis Mm -hmm. is predicated on like, oh, you're working all the time for money. And then the, but then you realize getting all that money doesn't matter. And you're, you're not as things are too stable. That was like the midlife Mm -hmm. crisis joke in the eighties, not a joke, but like a joke because it was um kind of absurd in a sense but t- now it's absurd because that's impossible like no one yeah almost no one lives that life and so more so than anything like the characters in these silkworm songs are people who we are forced to we've been forced to become uh in general and so the the utopian notion of the Clinton clintonite 90s is obviously right was given lied to even then, but it's more so on front street, I guess. Like it's sort of like silkworm is kind of, you know, what Bruce Springsteen was supposed to be doing, um, but Mm -hmm. kind of failing at capturing in, in general. And I like Bruce Springsteen, but the, like you've called it sentimental before. And I think there's something to that uh, with Springsteen, whereas like I, re- I remember, I mean, silkworms so such a big deal for the ac- their acolytes, myself included. That I remember one of our friends, like we we're having a I don't know a conversation about like, oh, what's your favorite record? And our friend Sean said something like, "Well." it's a bunch of silkworm records and then it's, you know, then he was going to answer it. And, and that, I think that's how people who are into silkworm feel in general. Um, Mm -hmm. And someone, and another one of our friends asked me one time, like, and I, so I have this weird experience with music often where if I miss something really good and I hear it like two years later, I am like, destroyed like i'm pissed i feel like i've lost decades and it doesn't mm-hmm. even occur to me like i started listening to Sleater Kinney's kenny's the woods record in like 2007 or 8 and it only came out in 2005 but it was like devastating mm-hmm. that i didn't know about it um and but but with silkworm you know our friends were you know like your bandmate jason was the one who introduced me properly because that was before i knew you really um and one of our friends had sold me his old ipod with all of his stuff like music on it which at that time was a huge deal like that was not easy to come by um and so i was listening to whatever silkworm records were on there and the and so anyway Uh, Jason had asked me one time after I had been into silkworm sufficiently long enough to be familiar with the catalog. He's like, what's your favorite silkworm record? And I was like, reflexively blue blood. And I didn't really know. I couldn't have explained why at the time. Uh, I think what I would have said at the time is it was just more straightforward, but in retrospect, I went back and re-listened to it before this episode. And I think the actual reason is because it's the most heartbreaking one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's rough. And, and I'm, yeah, it is rough, but it's good. Like, that's why it's so mm-hmm. good. Um, right. And it, another thing like to this, it like time kind of bends around this band for me in that, like, if i go back now that i have spotify and i could just have everything you know the catalog <laughs> chronologically or whatever and i look at like oh these records came out literally every year for like 7 mm-hmm. years or whatever but if you listened for me listening to each of these records it sounded like just like decades in between each one they were yeah. so radically different in in so many ways and they covered so much terrain Um, Mm. emotionally, aesthetically, whatever that like it just blew me away. And I think my experience of listening to Silkworm in you know around the time Italian Platinum came out, um, and seeing that some of the records came out in '94, you know, I just assumed that it was just spread out somehow over a broader scale, but it wasn't, um, which is just a testament to how good they are. And then, you, you know, your other bandmate. Uh, put together that covers record of silkworm mm-hmm. that that was the idiot to not appreciate your time reference i made earlier and some of the shit on there is better than silkworm like the shitty little yacht mm-hmm. cover the clean me out cover mm-hmm. did spring to mind um because somehow like they they got closer to the even closer to the mark than even silkworm did yeah you know because like real argue like an artist doesn't like control what they're making they're not you know they're, they're real the good artists the true artists or whatever true quote-unquote artists like understand that they're just sort of channeling something from somewhere else and they're pretty explicit mm-hmm. about that um so yeah i guess just as just as a way into this like the they do they do paint Uh, a picture of america but it's not specifically american Mm -hmm. i mean it is and it isn't um there's like there is certainly universality to this it's just it's just that you know when did they emerge and then the most like troubling aspect of this band is that they never went anywhere like they never made any Mm -hmm. money and Reading this, like I knew they weren't popular, like I knew they weren't a known quantity in the mainstream, but the when lifestyle came out in ninety nine and only sold five thousand copies, like I didn't know it was that low, like that is fucking absurd, um for how mm-hmm. good this is, but there are bands like that, the Mendoza line is like that, where they just have like a string of incredible records, and nobody knows who the fuck they are, um yeah. And some have argued like the Mendoza line has argued that they are like the replacements in that sense of like this really great American band who didn't quite get there. I mean, the replacements are more well-known now for sure, but, um, you know, they were, the replacements were making these incredible rock and roll records in the eighties when, you know they were known, but they weren't that's mm-hmm. not what was popular in in the general sense um so a silkworm it's almost it's just more of a tragedy and a travesty that it mm-hmm. they never got a bigger reach not that that's the measure of everything, but only but simply that their impact should have been greater, which is evident in the the documentary about them um mm-hmm. that, where there's like a, the trail. I don't know. The documentary was a little long winded for me, but the trailer would like brought me to tears um, multiple mm-hmm. times. And there's this clip in there where I don't know who it was. I don't think it was Albini, but somebody was like, if, if in 20 years, people aren't freaking out about silk or I'm going to lose my fucking mind. And it's like, yeah, that's, that is how good they are. Um, So I don't know if you do know. Yeah, no. And that's sort of the,
0: well, I was going to say unasked question of the essay, but maybe it is asked. I don't even remember. Um, how is it to your point that this group has a universality and a proletarianism is maybe not the right word, but to their the, the songs and the sort of the ethic and all that sort of thing um, in a way that's not like a fugazi, right, where it's intentionally five dollar shows and sort of almost ham fistedly political yeah, um, or something how is it they silkworm accomplished all that and still nobody nobody knows who they are despite that universality and that accessibility as it were um that's the question and there's you know there's a lot of bands you could say that were like that like the replacements or mendoza mm-hmm. Liner. we've had candy machine played on the show stuff mm-hmm. like that what, that we all liked um but for some reason it does feel like silkworm was different because of that um ethic that they had or that sort of the the character's uh, the stories they tell with, through those characters and those songs about the cab driver, the office middle manager, I mean, all that stuff, but that is you and me. And that sort of speaks to the proletarianization of everything mm-hmm. in the U S. Um, and so they were, and maybe the answer is they were just too far. Yeah. I mean, they saw, they saw the future and they were just ahead of their time as such. And it just wasn't the kind of thing that translated at the time, maybe, but um, hopefully it's beginning to more. So now. So.
1: Yeah. And I mean, there's, you know, we've talked, privately about how one of the things that shocks me about silkworm is like how half the songs on the record will be terrible and then the other half yep, will be that's like right fucking incredible like just the best thing you ever heard right. if you like, give a shit at all about pop music um yeah and that's okay like i'm not to me that doesn't mm-hmm. take away from anything it's it's just the 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 way it went down um but part of why i say that is like i'm I'm a sucker for, like, you know, big, bright melodies and all that shit. Like, I can listen to more conceptual stuff, too. Like, I I certainly do. But um, when you listen to, like, Slave Wages or, um, uh, you know, I Hope You Don't Survive or uh, what's the – there's another one on Italian Platinum that just was, like – I'm going to look it up, but oh, man. Uh, the, but like, so it's, it's just, um, it's kind of unbelievable sometimes. And then you hear something that's just like, obviously all of it is intentional, but very clunky and sort of like overly yeah. ironic in the vocalizations and stuff. It, that always, I didn't know what to do with that and that's okay. But, um, yeah. Aesthetically, like that's just really interesting, I guess. I I don't have a, I don't have like a coherent sh- stream of thought on that, but, um, but then you hear like, I, I think th- some of that sort of reaches its apogee. Like it it works better when it is, when they are, when they're doing covers. Like, um, mm-hmm. so we played, uh, a song from the Crust Brothers, which is the, uh, was that, uh, was the drummer still alive or was that without the drummer?
0: Yeah, I know that was, that was with Michael Dalquist, the drummer. So yeah, the crust brothers is maybe you said this silkworm plus Steven mouth, Mr. Mis-
1: right. And singing. Yeah. So, and that's all, well, all but one. Okay. Now here's the question you would know better than me. There's that song from a silkworm record, but mm-hmm. it is also a cover, right? That right. never met a man. I didn't like. No, that's a silkworm song. Oh, okay. Because there's a but they did do
0: a number of covers, yeah,
1: on but, their albums proper. Yeah. Okay. Right. Like they do that. They do the cover of Ooh La La, which is uh, mm-hmm. the Faces, which is fucking amazing. Um, and then, but anyway, the, what I'm getting at with the covers is like, like as you quote in the article, Grail Marcus says like the crust Brothers maybe did the best version of Herded Through the Grapevine ever recorded, which is a create like that's coming from him that's a pretty Mm -hmm. bold endorsement, but you listen to it. It's, it's pretty undeniable. Um, and then they do like, (laughs) they do that cover of lo and behold by the band off the basement tapes. Now real Marcus wrote an entire book about the basement tapes and the basement tapes is this very mysterious creation of, um, Bob Dylan and the band retreating from public life in sort of, and and this is Grail Marcus's like rose-colored glasses version of it, of course. But retreating from a scene that they like an emerging country that they didn't understand, like uh, the hippies and stuff. Now, what's interesting hmm. about that to me in retrospect is. Like, that's a compelling argument anyway. Grail Marcus claims that they discovered an America that, like, only existed in that basement at that time or something and then populated by all these characters. And then he finds different threads throughout the history of, like, American folk music, what's called the old weird America. That was his – he coined that phrase that's sort of stuck around in the nearly two decades since he published that book. But um, it's very interesting to me – Given what we've talked about in the um, drugs as weapons against Us" episode, where like we now know we have enough receipts that we know that the CIA and army psychological warfare, um, which are distinct entities. um were using drugs to like create, and then Dave McGowan's uh, weird scenes from the Canyon about how it was cl- there's there's too many coincidences for it to simply just be happenstance that basically the hippie mm-hmm. movement was invented in Laurel Canyon, um, by a bunch of children of spooks, and wow. then f- M- McGowan's theory is that that was a way to try to delegitimize the anti-war movement, um, and so it's. It's telling that right as that's happening, Bob Dylan says, I don't even, I don't know what the fuck this is. And then just pulls back from public life Mm -hmm. when, at a time when, okay, he had the motorcycle crash, but he could have been, he was like at the height of his powers as it were. And then when he did a comeback tour with the band or multiple tours, like they're selling out stadiums and stuff, but um the which speaks says to me that dylan was you know somehow uncorrupted by all the like like i the argument i made in the episode was that he figured he just saw the game that was being played and retracted himself from it like i think like if you listen to um like a rolling stone again like it seems very abstract and there's all these weird characters but like once you understand that the the feds were literally trying to destroy the counterculture and destroy just whatever constituted American culture as a actual aesthetic you know practice or whatever he um you you find out that like that was going on, all those people were um real characters. Like that, that actually was happening, and so a lot of this stuff it becomes to me less um conceptual, which will become relevant later on when we're talking about David Lynch's Lost Highway. But anyway, um, the covers the reason I brought up the covers with Silkworm is because, like, if you listen to off their last EP, Chokes, um, like they cover a Dylan song, um, Spanish Harlem incident, they cover CCR. Um which one? Uh, I can't remember. I wrote a song for everyone. Yeah, and then there's another cover on there too, I think. Or is it just those two? I can't remember. Oh man, um I think it's just two,
0: but it I mean maybe I'm forgetting one.
1: Yeah, um I'm looking it up right now, but the to me like that's where you see like all the the fissures in their aesthetic if they're, you know, like or the inconsistencies kind of like they coalesce better when they're doing covers sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't mm-hmm. mean their covers are their best songs. I'm not saying that I'm just saying that um, they they're breaking through in some other way. Like it's that's those are moments yeah. that are transcendent. I think beyond, you know, what one might find on anyone's records in, in some respect. And so then this marquee, Uh, This uh, Crust Brothers record Then they just like Sort of go all in um, Mm -hmm. On the covers Which is ballsy Uh, But Again There's a certain Type of logic to it And so When they covered Lo and Behold It's like That's when you hear Like To me Like that Those basement That basement tapes record Is Some of it's bad Like it doesn't sound good at all Mm -hmm. And Lo and Behold Mm -hmm. I think is one of those songs And that doesn't mean There's nothing worthwhile in it It's just you kind of hear the, you hear the sort of tension and the like dissent things start to disintegrate in a certain type of way. Um, whereas like with that Mrs. Henry song we listened to is, this is just like um, unleashing, you know, mm-hmm. the, the sort of most for me, at least like the, level of like dejection and shit where like dylan didn't sing it like that but right um, you know maybe they found something truer in it than he could have which is a lot of what grail marcus talks about with with cover songs like grail marcus claims that jeff Tweedy's is i'm i'm abridging this but basically, and this is not a direct quote but basically jeff tweedy sucks until he's covering ancient you know Ancient American folk songs And then something mm-hmm. else sort of emerges Um, Which I don't, I'm not totally on board with that But there's something to that So I think the What Socoran's able to capture In terms of like The sort of disintegration Like the, the fragmented Almost Dadaist experience, uh, em- Emotional experience of dejection and um, humiliation that comes with like a collapsing economy or a collapsing social world. Um, like the data is, we want to smash the world and smash it and then pick up the pieces or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like that's sort of what's going on here, but not in terms of um, not in terms of the formal structure of a rock song. You know, and like you quote yeah. somebody in the article saying that Silkworm is one of the great American classic rock bands and they doesn't mean that at all is a slight against them. I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, they use the convention of, you know, especially in this Crest Brothers record, but in general, the convention of classic rock um, without falling prey to the schlockiness of how it sounds now a lot of times and not all of it does but plenty of it does like and i think you know something needs to be like maybe one sign of great art is can you rescue something from its context like we heard Mm -hmm. we listened to that um that journey cover of the guy from uh What the fuck was it? Remember that acoustic cover of, E. Mm. E Oh, what the fuck is his name? I'm gonna Google it. But um, that where it's like it's heartbreaking, but it's a fucking Journey song. But if you listen to that Journey song, it wouldn't be heartbreaking. It's only this guy's playing like a ukulele or whatever. Um, And how is this not coming up for me? Odd. but anyway, so you get the point, like, and I think, and there's something, you know, we've talked about this, like how, you know, for better or worse and under postmodernism, there is sort of just this necessity of pastiche. Like if, if you're yeah. doing anything uh, and I think sokor just figured a way, they, they figured out a hack where they could avoid um, repeating other people, but not. You know, not lose anything in the process, which is, is yeah. why Nirvana, like that's that's those Grail Marcus's argument about why Nirvana was so terrifying and amazing is like one of his earlier his earliest comments about them that I read was just like he couldn't believe how somehow they used these basically like beaten to death rock licks to figure out mm-hmm. how to like you know. Have it feel like the world is collapsing or whatever. Yeah. So
0: you and you mentioned the the postmodern pastiche thing, and I was just going to say that I think you, you you beat me to the punch, but uh, somewhere Jameson Fred Jameson talks about the ways in which postmodernism has essentially turned everything into a commodity. Right? It's stripped even art of its autonomy, um such that it's never not a commodity, right? A product. And so, I mean, you're exactly right. We also read that Nick. Brown, rev- I'm sorry, Jameson's review of the Nick Brown book autonomy, as I recall, maybe a year ago or so, um the, the Social Ontology of Art or whatever the title is, mm. and and he and that's what he talks about too, saying you know great art, I mean, it can somehow retain its autonomy in spite of this postmodern neoliberal state where everything is a product, and I think that's probably where Silkworm is at, is they somehow maintain that autonomy that those songs are art at the same time as potentially being yeah rock songs but um they have that autonomy there and that's what perhaps that's the answer to the question is why they weren't able to sort of break through is because they refused to to play the game in that way or become become that commercial product in the obvious way despite the fact that they sounded like they should have
1: mm-hmm. yeah but and i think i mean we you know i with my shock at how few rec, I mean, I would have made, if they would have sold 50,000 records, I would have thought that was low, you know, like, Mm. um, and I had mentioned to you or, you know, a week or two ago that like they were getting written up in spin and rolling stone. And that was before I'd got the part where you quoted that, but I just knew that that had happened, especially by like 99 or 2002 or whatever. Um, and so what the fuck happened and and then i had said that it was like a low point in pop music what i meant by that was just just sort of really the dregs of like when i was in high school um which is the basically the period of time we're talking about it's like there the shit that was like making money was really bad it was like like i like the first Eminem record um like it's good mm-hmm. it is good but it's also like kind of a comedy record in a way and Mm -hmm. uh 50 cent was like again i like some of his songs but like awful like not you know compared to the hip-hop that had come maybe three years before or five years prior it was just like obscenely stupid or you know Mm -hmm. this was like the boy band era so um in britney spears and all, you know and i like a couple of britney spears songs i like a couple of christina Aguilera, mandy moore songs but like this is not breaking new ground it's sort of trying to okay. it it reminds me of in the we each read uh chapter of i didn't finish the chapter but like um reading from grail marcus's the shape of things to come prophecy in the american voice from 2005 there's a chapter on Mm -hmm. bill pullman's face and he quotes lynch david lynch a bunch of times who said uh and one of the quotes was that the 50s never ended um Mm -hmm. you just see it everywhere and that that is really what the end of the 90s were like in terms of pop music where they were trying to like resurrect using like a hollowed out mtv model trl to in carson Daly, this like reviled like schlocky like not even charismatic just this like mm-hmm. dead dead face dipshit um to sell pop music to to kids and it worked for a time mm-hmm. i guess um but it was just like it was also the moment that and the other weird- the other bizarre thing about like silkworm not getting bigger too is like that's also right at the moment when Napster was destroying the music business's model, yeah. and so like i I can't account for all this like i don't I know that I lived through it, I know that i'm it, like one of the weird experiences for me is like I was hanging out with your friends because a friend of my family is friends with your friends and so i was hanging out with older people when i was younger and so i was like you know like nirvana like that era of like the grunge explosion and all that stuff on mtv that was only like four to six years before the period that we're talking about um Mm -hmm. where you had like you know for better or worse like not i'm not saying all the bands that got big were good but like They were a lot more interesting, like in Mm -hmm. in general, like even Alice in Chains or Pearl Jam or something was much vastly more interesting than what kind of came out of the end of the 90s. And Mm -hmm. so in terms, again, of the mainstream, and so it was like bizarre to like have experienced that as like almost Nirvana was like my roots music. Um, Watching that all play out and then collapse with, you know, as we now know, Kurt Cobain's apparent assassination, Um, see our drugs as weapons against this episode for more there. But like, I, um, yeah, it's so none of this was hard to swallow for me. You know, I had that advantage that I had somebody with just an endless record collection before such a thing existed. And um, in any ready-made way, and so being exposed to all that stuff from a younger age, um, it was all just very it was an easy transition to like stuff like silkworm. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I live in North Dakota at the end of the day, like i'm I should be like a hick or like out of literally in the middle of nowhere, but somehow the the mainstream of the country like never caught on to like what the fuck was happening which is deeply confusing now (laughs) one analogy i could give because you had made a comment of like maybe something something else was going on there and i think you're probably right i don't know what it was but i do know that um like a friend of the show scott had mentioned to me that i don't know what i was i was excited that when tyler childer's rose up because it's like oh there's like left-wing country that's actually good like that's amazing whenever that was like three or four years ago and he pointed out that there was a period of time in the early 2000s where like every single song on the top 10 of the country charts was like written by the same guy and it was because Mm -hmm. the reason this is happening is the country the country like executives or a r guys or whoever controlled country music they they boxed all the out country people out like consciously and intentionally so that's why country was so bad for so long like cartoonishly bad because all you know like like think of it if like to take an alternate history view of that what if they had let uncle tupelo on the radio and then that had like mm-hmm. Bloomed into something else, or like Sun Volt had mm-hmm. been like a common name. Like, I mean, you can scarcely—it gives me chills. It's just like we could have had a different country in in some sense. Yeah. Like, um, so th- the same thing is true. You know, I I think it's it may be hard for not that terribly young people are listening to this, but like for younger people, it might be hard to imagine how big of a deal pop music used to be. Like now you can have literally anything you want at any time uh, from any mm-hmm. era and so there's not like a coherence um pop landscape uh pop music landscape and you know for better or worse but mm-hmm. um back in the 90s in the 2000s even like it was it very much like i think influenced people's consciousness in a way that we kind of probably can't imagine Which is why one of the reasons the CIA was so invested in controlling and torpedoing um, pop musicians who got influential, who were too left wing, like it was a problem. And they took measures Mm -hmm. to stifle that, you know, destroy it Um, again, watch (laughs) drugs, weapons against us. Can't stress that enough. But like, But yeah. So anyway, like, as in terms of silkworm as such, I guess it's just this. There's something. There's something tragic about the whole story. So not just even before uh, Mike's death, like just the sheer fact of like being forgotten while you still exist, like in in mm-hmm. there's no reason for it. Yeah.
0: No, and and maybe all of that gets us to the, gets us to the topic at hand, the Lost Highway and and David Lynch, but I was only, which features Henry Rollins, by the way, but, oh, and Marilyn Manson, right? I think he's, yeah, but that's a different, I was going to say to the Nirvana thing, uh, the only thing I'd mention is, I mean, you're exactly right, everything you said there and that it's interesting that he seemed to (laughs) have to be disposed of or whatever, Um, as soon as started doing covers, right? Not only covers Mm. of like Lead Belly and that kind of stuff. And then of course, you know, that the record that Albini recorded for them, that uh, their last one in Euro, I mean, that thing is just, it is madness the way that record sounds and there's no way that should be on the radio, right? But in the nineties, you could get away with that. Um, And it, Mm -hmm. I mean, to your point, it did change the world and the consciousness of kids like me and you. And because I feel like to your point about 21st century everybody's got everything at their fingertips all the time online uh, there's nothing at stake anymore but in 1993 right. when you know rape me came out or something that there was something at stake there and i mean in terms of the culture war happening for a bunch of kids and their parents and kind of what you could what you were allowed to be exposed to uh intellectually as a kid in north dakota even right and that mattered in ways that it mm-hmm. probably doesn't now um and so that's maybe that's point being that gets us to the notion of this lost highway where kind of we're at the end we're literally at the end of the uh, the highway, and it's it's a cliff right after this. And that's I don't know if David Lynch is trying to sort of speak to that, but um, we got to rewatch that. Thank you for the suggestion. Yeah, and uh, I had sure. a much better experience this time than uh, last time. So you mentioned our friend earlier, uh, Nick, and that was the first time I saw this uh, film, Lost Highway. It was it was I think one of the famous Halloween parties at that house, and it was just on TV, right in their living room. I was right. like, oh, I'm gonna sit and watch this, you know essentially porn film sex and violence um because i'd never seen it before and i liked lynch and i thought it was interesting but i didn't remember i mean it was over 20 years ago i didn't remember hardly anything from that film and it was i mean i was shocked at how interesting it was and good still Mm -hmm. on this rewatch so
1: yeah um i got so i saw this movie with my parents um when it came out on video. So in 97 or 98, so I was like 16 probably or 15. um, And I just like, by then I was used to watch, they let me, I'm not saying this was healthy or should have happened, but like (laughs) after the fact post facto, I do feel in the way that like, uh, uh, James Baldwin's talked about like his, he had like a, this white woman who was like his babysitter kind of, or tutor or something, but she would in New York would take him to all these like movies that were, he would have never seen, uh, otherwise mm-hmm. because he was so young and he found this to be a great gift. And so like, you know, even though my parents, like arguably abuse or neglect um, led me to see a lot of movies that I probably shouldn't have at a younger age. I do think that it did. It broadened my horizons perhaps more than almost anything, save for uh, Nick and his like endless movie and uh, music collection that were sort of like dovetailing because they were our family friends. So that's why I was knew them. Um, But, I just remember like with lost highway so i i have a lot of criticisms of grail marcus's reading of it and we can get into that in a minute but Mm
0: -hmm.
1: just as a starting point like i was you know given my age especially like patricia arquette was so is so like unbelievably beautiful that like in this movie i just remember it happening where it's like all the things that i wanted to see I got to see right after yeah. like the, it created it staged a desire and then paid it off. And it was yeah. mind blowing to me that this was happening. Like, um, like I didn't have a theory of what was going on in the, you know, like linear or nonlinear world of the film. Like I, you know, I'm, I wasn't claiming I could follow it at that level, but there was something, mm-hmm. what was mind blowing about that? was that it was happening in the way that i wanted it to whereas like i definitely seen a lot of sex scenes and movies from like the late 80s mid to late 80s early 90s where um they would use sex as kind of a blunt instrument uh blunt object mm-hmm. sort of sometimes not all the time but there was definitely a lot of that going on um and watching it with my parents added this like sort of physically cringe element to like oh i'm like a horny teenager i like this but like my mom's sitting here like it's weird uh obviously yeah. um but with this it was different like it was it was staged much differently and i remember getting into a conversation about lost highway with some slovenian dude uh i don't know this was probably 10 years ago now on facebook and I was trying to talk about th- how, you know, Lynch's genius is like staging this desire and then paying it off. And then he said something like, yeah, there's a difference between porn and eroticism. And mm-hmm. that's sort of like what's captured here at that, like libidinal, purely libidinal level uh, in a way that I don't know that I've seen replicated much. Um and I also watched Showgirls this week, um, which mm-hmm. is Paul Verhoeven's like initially universally panned. It was a big joke how like I think people misunderstood what they were seeing. So Verhoeven, who made RoboCop, who made Starship Troopers, who made Basic Instinct, Total Recall, Total Recall, um, yeah. to me, Showgirls is a nice compliment to lost highway in a certain way because i think they're both aiming at the same target in in some sense not so much in terms of content as such but i think what people misunderstood about showgirls is that what's what appears to be overacting and arguably a ridiculous story is actually classic a classic hollywood movie but staged in the 90s with 90s issues around like sex work and patriarchy yeah. um but he just staged it almost like as like a like the only but it's only satirical in the sense that um he's just pointing out how absurd like if you watch hollywood movies from even good hollywood movies from the 50s and 40s and 50s especially but even into the 60s like the like it's so bad, you know, by our standards in mm-hmm. terms of like how we understand acting, how it's supposed to work, and how things are supposed to work visually. And so Verhoeven sort of just takes that and just applies it directly. It's like throwing it in your face. Um, and there's and then something transcendent kind of happens if you can just surrender to it. Like the insanity of it starts to work in it at a different level, and I think that's kind of what um lynch is doing except instead of doing basically a big hollywood musical with using strippers basically um lynch is making a hitchcockian movie in in an era where no now i didn't know this cuz i was in high school but uh where mk ultra has been exposed as something that the U S government did and continues to do. And so like, if it's sort of the, though, to me, the gambit or the wager is like, how do you make a Hitchcockian movie with all that dread and all these reversals in a world where we're left with, again, as Lynch says, the fifties never went away. Like you're still walking in the shoes of these, you know, dead pop stars and pop songs, like Grail Marcus points out, you know, like these are dead voices, these recordings. Mm-hmm. And so like how do you what 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 does that actually look like when what the government is doing is literally torturing and raping children to turn them into um program killers? Like that that's that's something that happens as standard operating procedure. Like this is the movie you get. And so when I said that I have a problem with girl Marcus's reading, first of all, he just lies in that reading. Like he gives a summary of the film that just leaves out huge parts. Um, Like he, he completely leaves out the fact that like Mr. Eddie is supposedly Dick Laurent by the end of the film, but he leaves out completely the fact that there's a, there's a time loop. In the logic of the film, where the film opens with uh Bill Pullman's character, um Madison, somebody buzzes their uh their house and he asks who's there, and the the response on the intercom is Dick Laurent is dead. And that's how the Bill Pullman ends the film saying mm-hmm. going to the house and saying that. But mm-hmm. But like temporally, that's impossible because the cops are there to prove that this isn't a dream. The cops the same cops who chased the kid um or who are investigating the, the cops who investigate the break-in uh with Bill Pullman and then discover the kid, uh Dayton, in the jail cell that Bill Pullman's supposed to occupy. Those all exist in the same timeline, and that's not possible, like temporally. And um, Grail Marcus just literally skips over that completely. Where he's lying is when they go to uh, Artie or or not uh, Andy's house to rob him, yeah. and there's a porno playing of uh, Patricia Arquette having sex. First of all, Grail Marcus says she's being painfully penetrate her anus is being penetrated well there's no they're having sex doggy style there's no indication that she's in pain unless he's never seen it a calls, woman mm-hmm. having sex before and then he calls it a snuff
0: film too but. what's that oh maybe you're gonna say this he calls it a snuff film and i don't know that we have that oh no that was
1: that. later that's in a different scene oh, um okay. but mm-hmm. uh no like then he says he's trying to stage this thing where Patricia Arquette sort of her character changes and she does like there's a switch once, once Andy's dead, she kind Mm -hmm. of shifts her demeanor. Uh, And then it cuts back to like, you see the porn again. And this time she's having, she's enjoying it. And it's like, no, she's just the whole time. She's just having sex. (laughs) Like, it's not, it's not like a, it it was just the most, I was just like, what do you You don't need to do you don't need to lie like i was Mm -hmm. anyway um but like he grail marcus's default here the sort of case he's trying to make is that this is somehow lynch is tapping into this this extremity that's kind of core to american life and all this stuff about like why are americans so obsessed with highways they're trying to get away or they're trying to go somewhere he's like where they're trying to go they're trying to escape themselves like it's just it's just a little annoying Mm -hmm. but um the the reason i even bring this up as an issue in the film you know we can get into the more sort of like going through the film as such but like there's a quote in there where grail marcus quotes some film critic who said something like there's this feeling in lost highway that or in lynch's films that there's some simple truth right there for the, like it's staged almost like it's, it's, um, it's a very straightforward movie, even though it gets more confusing, the more times you watch it, to which I respond, if you know how mind control works, it's not confusing at all. It's simply staging Mm -hmm. the sort of madness that occurs when you don't have control over your own timelines and what your mind is doing, uh, to like deal with that so if you just simply accept the fact that like the james dean looking character as grail marcus claims he is i i would argue i don't know if he's a james dean guy Mm -hmm. i would say more of like no (laughs) perhaps like a neil cassidy or some shit like that um but not quite that hip but even that just he's just kind of a greaser is all basically Mm -hmm. i mean so i'm glad you agree with that because i'm just like james dean like if he's trying to make this rebel without a cause argument it's like that's not this dude didn't kill himself, like, because he was driving no. too crazy. Like, I don't know. though. and also, like, how is that something to aspire to? Um, <laughs> like, not, not probably the, you know, whatever. I, I don't mean that moralistically. I just mean like, who gives a shit? But, um, right. Anyway, like, what I'm, where I'm going is like, if if you accept that, like, Bill Pullman's character and the kid are the same person that want, they're just alter egos of one another. And that Pr- Patricia Arquette is also, uh, you know, one of these sex operatives, but she's, she, she exists as Renee and as Alice, but like as alter, those are also alters, but she's his handler. She's sort of controlling what he's doing. Then it makes total sense. And mm-hmm. again, if you know about MK ultra where they literally traumatize it's trauma-based mind control. You traumatize a child in the most horrific ways possible over a period of time. And then you can create new personalities that are unaware of one another that can trans that can, uh, courier information or carry out hits or, you know, whatever without knowing that they did it. Um, so, all of that stuff, I think that's just a baseline. That's like an easy way to understand the story. Cause I remember showing this to one of my friends who is more, who's very, who's raised very Catholic. He's, he was certainly interested in stuff that wasn't mainstream, but this was so confusing to him that he got mad. Like he was angry because he didn't know what he just saw, which I found very fascinating uh, at the time. And then I just looked up whatever I could find on the, you know, primitive internet and they made an argument about how basically like he was in a fugue state and all this stuff um which maybe but uh so yeah i i just i think I'm, i'm more and more suspicious of grail marcus's whole american like studies type of perspective because it's like you're completely ignoring, you're trying to make this aesthetic argument about all these extremes and all these sort of like faces people put on that occupied, like he, at one point he said like, and then Patricia Arquette, Renee said like, wow, she became a Manson girl for a moment. it's like, sure. But like, you're <laughs> again, like in all these instances, it's just like, if you admit, if you just acknowledge that the CIA was backing these plays, then you don't need all this conceptual abstraction like and it doesn't your argument doesn't lose any potency so that that was where i was just having a problem and i obviously am a big grail marcus person it's just uh looking back at it you know almost 20 years later it kind of doesn't some of it just doesn't hold up um and that's fine so i don't know if you know Mm-hmm. yeah no uh, totally agree um i was
0: uh, to the i mean bringing silkworm and this film together i was gonna say in the same part that that's i w- i mean i was thinking this after the fact that if there's anything about lost highway that kind of bugged me and i'm open to your thoughts on this was the the rammstein and the Marilyn manson all that sort of soundtracking at least in some parts of it whereas in my mind some of these I mean, we could all find a dozen silkworm songs that sort of would have mm, Played perfectly in some of those scenes and just made it all make sense. um But I agree. I mean, to your point about the Grail Marcus stuff, I suppose. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I maybe said this off air or maybe it was on air, but uh with uh, uh, the Old Weird America um, book or Invisible Republic, I think that America stuff he was doing, it worked. It made a lot of sense with Dylan and the band, and of course, folk music and so on. But by this Shape of Things to Come, Book, it's just kind of, it's kind of tired and I don't know that it works in the same way. And so, um, and, and I agree with you, I think he's missing the point, which is that, uh, I mean, you don't need to go to all those lengths about Americans and highways escaping themselves to just see the fugue states, a dissociative sort of behavior, um, CIA, and just, you know, general um, surrealism in noir as as its own aesthetic for its own um in mm. its in itself or whatever that Hegelian term is or Kantian term again to the point of making an autonomous piece of art that is perhaps right. non-commercial right and it and it just works and it's interesting on a on a variety of levels but in particular in the wake of this mk stuff we've been doing it made a lot more sense to me on this viewing stuff i wouldn't have thought about or even known I, you know in 1998 or 99 when right. i first saw it um but yeah, I I agree I think it's a great film. Um and um I don't know if there's anything in particular I wanted to get. I mean there was but I'm just forgetting right now what it is I wanted to say. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah, I I'm, I'll say this i immediately i mean you brought this up and i thank you the distinction between porn and eroticism and i immediately regretted using that word when i first said it because that's not how i see this film i just want to make that clear as well i think there's something incredibly aesthetic about what's happening and crucial rather than being gratuitous Mm -hmm. crucial to the the point of the film and the plot and the aesthetic itself so
1: oh yeah fair enough i and i took it like i thought I took that as okay. like you were joking. Like it was funny that yeah. you're doing this in full view of like a room full of adult people like in your Oh yeah, exactly. You're like 20 years, so, yeah. So, no, I didn't <laughs> I didn't take that as a, a reductive move or whatever. Um Yeah. And yeah, if you think of what you want to say just interrupt me, please. But um, Okay. Yeah, I think so the and just to be clear about like the MK Ultra stuff, so the what what pilled me on this um uh, Movie again was, I mean, first of all, like, besides again, besides Twin Peaks Firewalk with Me, which is to me the, the best movie ever made, um, which is a Lynch film. And I was glad to see Grail Marcus class Twin Peaks Firewalk with Me with Blue Velvet as his Lynch's best work. He's right about that. Well, Blue Velvet is another story, but you know, I was glad he at least got that point. Um, mm-hmm but uh there was a farm episode where they were talking about david lynch and all these kind of like weird occult connections um with lynch is involved with something called the Albo what is it albacore club or the tuna club of alba alvalon or some shit like in it's this like sort of slight secret society type thing in la and he did this um recluse is the guy who hosted he did this wonderful like history of Hollywood that was um talking about how like you know the sort of the um euphemism of the casting couch like that was there from the very beginning where like women having to fuck producers to get roles and to stay in the business like that was all there from the very beginning Um and the in the links between like, you know, the first Hollywood studios and how, like, it was all of course, like very corrupt uh, as a starting point. Um, I'm not doing it justice, but just, you know, just briefly. And then like Lynch being involved, like it gets into some wild shit about like his transcendental meditation um, stuff. Like the, like recluse is claiming that, he thinks Lynch got like scared like shoved out of Hollywood f- at some point and so the 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 TM stuff like Lynch's the the transcendental meditation nonprofit that he's involved in is worth like billions of dollars and there was some mm-hmm. huge scandal in the middle of the country where they had literally like brought a bunch of people from India with no papers or whatever and were they had like slave labor conditions and the people like revolted Mm -hmm. in this town um and so there's this this tm group is like a money laundering operation and i guess technically human trafficking operation um and but but like specific to lost highway um oh so Barring leaving Twin Peaks Firewalk with me aside, Lost Highways for sure Lynch's masterpiece, as far as that goes. I mean, there's to me, there's no question about that. People try to make Mulholland Drive the masterpiece. I think that's just because it's more digestible, um, and it's a it's safer because Mm -hmm. Mulholland Drive is great, and like they do some interesting stuff with comedy in there too. Um but it's more if you're just like more mainstream, horny person. Mulholland Drive is probably your conceptual movie, quote big quote unquote, uh, that you like, and that's not shitting on it. I love it. But that it it started as a it was supposed to be a pilot for a French TV show, and then that got mm-hmm. shit canceled. Lynch like repurposed it into what it became, and uh, they were talking about it on Red Scare. And they were pointing out like, that's why there's all these weird French names in the movie. Like that don't really fit. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, I, yeah, to your point, like lost highway is a fully realized self-contained piece of art. Like, um, yeah, I I guess you could call it surrealist. Like it has, it definitely has, I would say like, it's emotionally surrealist um, in Mm -hmm. a sense. And the, there's like I so when I got really into film, uh, like in college, I began to realize that like the true masters are the ones who know how to use sound properly. Um, who see sound as to me, sound is more important than visuals in film, and that's not something people, in my experience, think about often. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's rare to see someone be able to master that. And that's why stuff like, um, John Carpenter, that's why John Carpenter's movies are so good. Um, you know, they're good anyway, but like he gets away with a lot of cons could potentially bad visuals by, mm-hmm. um, m- you know, making the, the, the sonic landscape, what it is. Um, and then that's also why uh, Pontecorvo, um, the guy who made the Battle of Algiers, like that guy mm. was sort of my hero. I mean, first of all, his here's how his life went: first, he was a pro tennis player who became a spy against the Italian fascists, who then became a filmmaker, and he's um italian i mean it doesn't get any that's it that's the that's the apogee mm-hmm. of life for me in a modern world but um <laughs> but that being said like uh pana was there's like this great documentary about him because he only made a few films but he he talked about the how important it was for him to find the right face for whatever was happening, and that's something that like Lynch is obviously very aware of. So like using mm-hmm. so film as like coming at film from the perspective of, of an artist, and I don't mean like everyone's an artist, every actor's an artist, but I mean like like a visual artist. Because um, Lynch went to art school and then made movies, mm-hmm. and I think the that that's sort of a rare you rarely find that um, transition. There's certainly video artists, but that's not really what I'm talking about. Um, and like, I remember, I think I was read. it must've been reading interviews of Lynch or something, but like the direction he gave to people was very, um, you know, smart, like uh, in wild at heart or something, which is a crazy fucking movie. Um like, in a certain scene, he wouldn't tell Nick cage to like, you know, he wouldn't change his blocking. He would just whisper in his ear. Okay. Think about Elvis in this scene or think about, you know, somebody else, like have some image in your head and that's who you're sort of drawing from. Um, Because Lynch understands like his genius is like sort of like the way that Quentin Tarantino is a failure is that his like sort of, idiosyncratic kind of masturbatory. I won't say solipsistic because the movies are watchable, but definitely uh, it's much more about him than anything else. Whereas Lynch is like the opposite where for Lynch, it's a, it's, it's, it's also this, you know, a deep and abiding, if you want knowledge of how we all share the same cultural reference points he just understands that they're all grounded in the fifties and that those are images that like, if you just tap it's you're tapping into an image, you're tapping into a moment more than anything else. And if you can do that, then like something interesting might happen. Like he was pissed off. I think that, um, I think it was in the last twin peaks season, season three, which is from 2017 that, uh, he, he got really pissed off cause they, they were trying to, they were keeping the schedule so tight. Like he, there was no room to improvise at all. And that's like what he wanted to be able to do. And so like, mm-hmm. if you know what you're doing, you can, you can create these visual and sonic landscapes that like other people just couldn't dream of doing, but all of that is down to like, how open are you to um tapping into what's already there? So in that respect, I do agree with Grail Marcus that there are all these sort of cultural ghosts or specters haunting us all the time lynch just uses that as clay to mold something else um without necessarily knowing what it's going to become um and that's hard to sustain obviously because it so rarely happens and so like now the (laughs) I, i start had started talking about the kind of weird shit in that movie um, I think in recluse talked about how like, so Bill Pullman's double, um, Dayton, I can't remember his, his first name, but his uh, last name Pete, isn't it Pete? Pete? Yeah. So Pete's, um, Pete is played by a Balthazar Getty, which is an intense name, but he's from the Getty family. Mm. So he's from these elite circles. I've never seen him in anything else. So it's very mm. bizarre that he was cast there. And girl Marcus points out that his his like girlfriend, who's not um, Patricia Arquette, is Al. He's not Alice. She's the granddaughter of Natalie Wood, who has played opposite mm-hmm. James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause. Um, so I'll give him that one. But um, the the there's like part of the argument Reclus makes is basically like there's this there are snuff films in the movie and there's this like this violent gangster who's sort of just like trolling around like getting his car fixed and like threatening people he beats the shit out of this guy who tailgated him which zizek has defended that which i agree with he's like he's just brutally enforcing the rules he's like that's a good thing <laughs> we need that mm-hmm. in society i totally agree with that um but like To me, what stood out is like, what makes this so obviously an MK movie is like a couple of specific points. So first of all, that thing I said initially about how the first time I watched it and I noticed how it just kept paying off my desires. There's a sort of obvious dream logic there, but that's also exactly how sex operatives work. So (laughs) literally Patricia Arquette makes eye contact with him at the um. At Archie's Autobody shop, run by Richard Pryor in a wheelchair um and he and then that Lou Reed magic moment cover starts playing, and like it's so perfect <laughs> and so like transcendent um and then she comes back and she's just like, "Take me to dinner, and then he's like, "I don't know, and she's like, "No, then let me take you to dinner and then like. She's gonna leave, and then he stops her, and then she's like, "Maybe we skipped dinner." Like that's literally how the CIA runs sex operatives. They're just like, "We want you." They like Alex Jones. So I, I have to interject this because it's relevant. Like I don't, and and I wouldn't even be qualifying this at all, except it's kind of talking about contemporary politics, which we may have to do soon because things are happening again for the first time in two years. But um, so. In the process of this January sixth um, stuff, the Department of Justice fucked up, and they sent documents in a trash folder to the defense, which literally admitted that the CIA was running sex operatives and running January 6th. Um, and... That, and then the judge immediately, once this fuck up was realized, the judge classified all these documents. Um, but Alex Jones talked about it on the Tim Dillon show that that's part of what's contained in those in those documents. And Alex Jones said he got approached by women like this where they'd be like, we want you tonight right now. And he, he's like, well, first of all, I'm married, but also like, I'm not an idiot. Like, I know how the fuck this works. And and then I was watching um a clip on Tim Poole's show, no defense of Tim Pool here, but this ex-federal prosecutor was like, if we can prove that there were feds, like FBI informants inside the, Jan- at January 6th, doing stuff, that means, he's like, because I ran informants uh, for the federal government, for the department of justice, that means that they've been working on those, those informants had been in place for at least six months. Cause you don't have anybody become overtly operational for six months. So like the literally January 6th was an, uh, it was a PSYOP, um, and which is to me, a bigger political earthquake than Jeffrey Epstein, And you'll Mm. notice the next day the bank started failing. So uh, pretty, pretty ham-fisted shit here in my view, but that's a conversation for another time. I'm just pointing out that like the, the fact of like you have someone as breathtakingly beautiful as Patricia Arquette in 1997, specifically no shade. she still looks good. But um, at that moment, like coming up and like, so like propositioning this prole guy that she and and I'm I'm a romantic I'm all about love at first sight but then you see what happens later, it's mm-hmm. it's very obvious that that's like what at least part of what that was staging and then I think I think there's also a, a dynamic between Mister Eddie and Pete that's um I think that was all a setup like the all of it including like him pretending to be pissed off that pete starts fucking um alice like that was all staged to get pete re-triggered into whatever thing they needed him to do Mm -hmm. and the reason i say that is because after mr eddie shows his like violent like capacity when he beats the shit out of that tailgater they come back and out of nowhere for no reason right as they're dropping pete off mr eddie's like hey uh you like porno (laughs) It's like, he's like, uh, what? He's like, you know, get your dick hard. He's got like a videotape and he's like, no, I'm good. He's like, suit yourself. And like, it reads kind of like on the surface is this absurd, like funny moment. But I think, Mm -hmm. I think we should be asking what's on the tape. Um, cause I don't think the tape was just, uh, sex. I think it was probably a snuff film. And so it was an attempt to like, it was literally he was literally like, how far are you willing to go without saying it or something like that? That mm-hmm. that's what I think. Uh that's my read of that. And then the other like clear MK thing was, um, the Robert Blake character, the sort of vampiric character who's literally, and this is the most obvious thing. This is like why it's disgusting that Girl Marcus ignored this, is he's clearly using trigger phrases. So when he encounters Bill Pullman, he says the exact same thing that he says um, to Pete, I believe at the end of the movie, Um, or maybe it's, it's the second Bill Pullman, like the second iteration of Mm -hmm. him with the leather jacket. Yeah. Um, Where he calls him and he's like, you know, I think we met before. And then the response is, no, it is Pete. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But it's two different versions of like an altar or something. Um, So Robert Blake first is like, you know, I, we met before and the, and the response is the same. The first response was um, what would make you think that? And then the exact same phrase is used on both sides, which suggests to me that then the, the following phrase is going to be the instruction. And then that's what mm-hmm. happens. So like that is just for, for someone like Grail Marcus, who literally wrote a book about the film, the Manchurian candidate to intentionally miss that is pretty retarded. Yeah. Um, and so <clears throat> like, I, I just think that's like very crucial to um be able to digest here. What the fuck is happening? Like there certainly mm-hmm. is, all of this um, shit about America and stuff. But I think you're, I think the, the, the thing you were saying about how, like, why use these Ramstein songs in place of something like silkworm? I think that is, that's like punctuated so intensely because the other music is so perfect Uh, because Mm -hmm. that Lou Reed song is perfect because when they're fucking in the desert, I don't remember what song that is, but that's so perfect. Or the song at the end um, where the lyrics are like, you know, how far can a secret travel? And like, it's basically talking about everything that just happened. I yeah. think though that the, the Ramstein thing, and even having Marilyn Manson and his guitarist in the movie is very distracting. Um, it's like a bizarre thing but we also know now that like Marilyn Manson had like a rape room and like he is the, the he's as like disgusting and horrifying as he's his character on stage. Mm -hmm. Um, the recluse sort of answers that with like, he's like talking about how the, those, those industrial music, that industrial music scene, was sort of playing with these fucked up ideas like these yeah about power but i don't know about you but for me it was like i mean i listened to Marilyn manson when i was 13 and like we listened to the hockey locker room like it wasn't i didn't think it was terribly dark like especially not that Mm -hmm. beautiful people record like it was that was just a pop record you know and that's fine it was Mm -hmm. fun or whatever um But it's the same thing with Satanism that I've talked about where it's like Satanism is really dorky and stupid and not scary. But then apparently some people take it seriously or use it as a way to like Mm. actually kill people. And then it's like, okay, that's fucked up. Like, I remember um, that guy in, i maybe have talked about this, that remember that band in Norway who are like burning down churches. And then one of the guys ended up. What is it? bursam bursam okay the guy who wasn't in prison um i don't remember his name but they show i remember watching this documentary and the whole thing was so bizarre to me did i think it was funny that they were shooting at mcdonald's because it was corporate yeah i thought that was funny um did i think burning down churches was cool Mm, i I mean, I guess I got their point, but it it was also like, oh, that's a little, it's, it's sort of like how Christian is Norway? Like, it's not like here, (laughs) right? Like the church is burning itself down as it is. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's redundant, (laughs) right? Like you live in a social democracy. Like, what are you doing? Um, But I just remember anyway, what I'm getting at is the guy who the, the more let's quote unquote, the more normal guy, let's say he did an art show and it was all these photographs with all this bondage and stuff. And it was so bad that I was like, I was like, Holy shit. Like, that's like, not, it's not only, you know, it wasn't scary or even that dark. It was just like, this sucks. And then they were asking him about the art and it was the most obvious Almost autistic version of like, this is about it's like Metalocalypse. Like, this is yeah. about, you know, I don't know, repression in society. And it was just like, oh, this is he's serious. Like, that's he's actually this fucking dumb. Like, and this guy makes <laughs> money. Like, what the fuck <sighs> is going on? And then they interview the guy in prison who is killing people. And he's just then he just becomes openly anti Semitic. And then you go, Oh, okay. He's just a fascist. Like that's terrifying, but like not surprising. Uh Um, and so like, that's kind of like how, how I feel about industrial music is like that, where it's like, on the one Mm -hmm. hand, it's like kind of fun, but dorky. And then, uh, on the other hand, apparently some people like, are killing people in that scene or something? Maybe I don't. You know, that's sort of the kind of the hint or whatever.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's bizarre to me and doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, like listening to Nine Inch Nails. um Nine Inch Nails is just emo, basically. Like, and I, that's fine with her I, <laughs> right. I like Nine right. Inch Nails, but like, if you mm-hmm. like look at it from a distance, you know, out out of context, it's like, oh, he's just like a sad boy. Like, that's cool you know yeah, and then he's got hurt. synthesizers yeah um <laughs> right well
0: so if i can just interject yeah, I think that's in part what i was what i was thinking about before while watching this is it i mean the romstein stuff and marilyn manson to that point um it made me think of liebach right and so and right. i know you mentioned the transcendental meditation david lynch and then i think grail marcus references lynch's ostensible uh sort of admiration for ronald reagan and so on and so yeah. <laughs> and so forth. And it made me think even before I'd read that Ronald Reagan stuff, or before you mentioned what you did about the sex trafficking in Kansas or something. Mm -hmm. um, I was reading, I was watching the film thinking, Hmm. To what degree? To what degree is this fascist, and that, and that I shouldn't be enjoying this? But I mean, and I'm not calling David Lynch fascist. I don't yeah. think that's what's happening here—that aestheticization of the the politics and the sex and the sort of, uh, I guess, patriarchy or something like that, or CIA and sort of making it seem attractive. Um, cause I don't think it does. No. Um, but I think it's, it's more like a lie if anything, where it's sort of playing with those visuals and that imagery and that tone, hopefully to sort of draw attention to it in a critical way of what was happening what the United States government was doing and, and has done and, and all that, what Hollywood does. Right. Right. And all that kind of thing. Too. And so that's what I, what I think is interesting, but, uh, for what it's worth, and and again, maybe this is part of his—he's uh, two steps ahead of me. David Lynch's use of Romstein or or Marilyn Manson doesn't do himself any favors by sort of to convince me otherwise. But um, I mean that it's a critique of that sort of stuff. But ultimately, I do think that's what's happening. But that is what kind of what was floating through my mind um, as a, as a topic worth discussing again. David Lynch is not a fascist, but for what it's yeah. worth, that does tie into overall the the tone of the film which is i think what's going on there too is again driving on that highway to the west right you're heading capital w west and you're going to hit the edge of the cliff soon and fall off it because that's kind of where we're at at that stage like silkworm mm. in 2002 sort of being the last best thing in game in town uh, as this sort of western civilization itself western civ just kind of falls apart and collapses and in that moment um you've said this elsewhere you know now is a time of monsters and so on i think it's very easy for that sort of for that nationalist fascist stuff as we've seen to sort of um to find um to find an inroad and uh do some damage right and that's and that's kind of that sort of thing was in my mind um as i watched this and i see that overlap again between again a silkworm and what they were doing at the end of the century and then what david lynch is doing as a critique of what's been happening to i mean this again quote unquote society and where we're where we're at and where we're going
1: yeah i mean grail marcus makes a point of like (laughs) i'm glad you brought up that shit about reagan it's very it's very funny like he's serious i think but lynch but like girl marcus points out that lynch has is tied to these like certainly these weird or was tied to these weird far-right groups um and like so he sort of runs down the litany of like like lynch was calling for like you need like an american like an american hero to i, I can't remember how he phrased it but it's like very mm-hmm. bizarre uh sort of like you said, aestheticization of politics. So Grail Marcus goes through all that. And then he just says, I don't think his politics have anything to do with his movies. And I agree. That's what Zizek (laughs) says too. Like Zizek's like, he's like i am almost like too embarrassed to talk about david like he he was he was talking about the movies and then somebody's like what what do you think lynch is doing like what does he think or something and and then she's like his politics are almost like too embarrassing to talk about like he was asked about homeless people and he said they should just get jobs or so he's like i don't even like who cares what he thinks about it basically Mm. um and but i will say this like This is where it gets tricky, but I think the reference to Leibach is very important. Um, Number one, I thought, and I'd have to go, I didn't have time because I was just, I watched this film like a few weeks ago and then I rewatched it and just finished it right before we started recording. So I didn't have time to go look, but I want to say that the first industrial sounding song when this, um. The doggy style sex tape is playing on the projector. I that sounds like a Leibach song to me, and then the yeah. later song sound like Ramstein. So, but it, they could all be Ramstein. I don't know. Um, but I, but just to like defend Ramstein, Zizek puts Ramstein and Leibach in the same category where they're mm. they're doing this like over identification with authoritarianism as a, a way to undermine it. You know, like, so like, you know, Zizek was asked about Leibach, like, well, aren't they like fascists or authoritarians? He's like, first of all, if anyone just straight up said to you what's in a Leibach song, like, there's no way you would be like, oh, fascism is good. You would think it was insane and hilariously stupid. Like, there's no way to actually... Uh, play that out like directly in a non-ironic way because it's too stupid and crazy and his claim is Rammstein is doing the exact same thing so that's to your point I think like mm-hmm. it invokes like I think the most like quote-unquote problematic reference is the Marilyn Manson stuff and that mm-hmm. is, but he gets apparently his dick cut off or something he gets murdered on screen mm-hmm. uh, in the snuff mm-hmm. film So maybe it is like a fuck you to Marilyn Manson in a way. Like recluse makes Mm. the point of like, there's something sketchy about like hanging out with those people, which is true. So like working with them, you know, not because like, not from a woke perspective, but from like a dark fascist undercurrent, like what's really going on here perspective. And so I, you know, I, I grant him that. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think there's nothing in that movie that is makes, mr eddie slash dick laurent sympathetic like he's he's Mm -hmm. he's a monstrous figure um Mm -hmm. and you're right that you have that sort of what i would say about and i don't know if this is exactly what you meant but like i remember i was in this hegel lacan seminar in 2011 online and we were talking about uh we were talking about i don't know like the rise of fascism or whatever. And I was pointing out that like when you have a power vacuum, um that's when the mob takes over. So that's what happened like in Eastern Europe. Um that arguably that's what happened in Russia, but there it was more and en- it was very precisely engineered um mm-hmm. to have the outcome of these oligarchs who are beholden to the FSB um like owning everything at least initially. And then Putin came in to quote, save the day or whatever. Uh, I put that in big quotes because he, you know, they set he set that up and then he takes power. So it's like, Oh, that, that how nice for you. You've quote, fixed the problem that you created. Um, but more precisely, like in Eastern Europe, like how do people like Milosevic and, um, uh, Kochesko or whatever, how do they actually get in power well you have a collapse of you you have a political collapse basically the state collapses and mm. what you're left with is a power vacuum well who's going to who's good at who's militant enough and good enough at inflicting power dynamics well it's going to be the mafia it's going to be organized crime to start with the gangs and so like in that from that perspective then um, somebody like Mr. Eddie Dick Laurent, like can just use the city as his like playground to be a monster. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter because there's no one is going to, no one's there to, uh, enforce the law or whatever. So mm-hmm. even the, the fact of him, his like, his excessive quote-unquote excessive response to the tailgater shows that like the rule of law doesn't matter. There's no, or at least there's no, like as Zizek would say, like, um, like etiquette, like once you lose etiquette, mm-hmm. that's actually a material problem. Like that's, uh, that's a huge issue. Like Zizek's pointed out that like, once you have people like, he like Lenin had this, there was this moment where people were fighting in the parliament physically, and Lenin was terrified because that like you're very close to just everything falling apart because appearances matter so much. Um, <laughs> but if you have this gangster who's sort of like enforcing this kind of you know, insane, like as Zizek said, this kind of insane patriarchal vision, like to me, that says there's no law to be had, uh, and therefore. You know, and that could be an argument, I guess, to your point, like Lynch is staging that that reality with the CIA running everything in conjunction with the mob. You know, some will argue they're not even distinct entities Um, and that that's where we live is just you have you basically in a criminal state, not in the sense of imperialism, although that's also true, but in the sense of like you just have rogue entities that are unaccountable with their own profit streams, following their own, um, you know, vision of like whatever horrors they want to inflict. So uh, fat international fascism, whatever you want to call it. But I would say that like two, two, two things are important here. Like Lynch has said that he um, it's interesting that I'm reaching for this particular analogy with like Eastern Europe, because Lynch has claimed that he, what he really likes are not Western countries, but the second world countries like Poland, you know, et-, et cetera, because they had this like very particular type of industrialism that like, we don't see here that he really like, he likes how it feels and how it sounds and how it looks. Um, So it's interesting that that's sort of like, especially in the late nineties where you have um. You know this. Immer- that's right. When all that Balkan, the, the Balkans were imploding, and you were having all these civil mm-hmm. wars, and the 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 gangs were taking over, and the mob had taken over Russia more or less by then. Um, so it almost is like that's like sort of that's the the last the last vestiges of power, like in this whatever pre nine eleven world is. That's how it looked is when the empires start to crumble because the american empire had be begun its decline in the you know in the 50s like chomsky's often pointed out and so like you know it's back to the same like okay the fall of communism was not just the fall of communism it was the fall of capitalism mm-hmm. as well um and so this film comes out in 97 where you have like things on the periphery things are like really crumbling, really falling apart in a strange way. Um, Like I could see this movie. You could see this movie taking place in East Germany after the wall fell where you just have like kind of a like wiped out society. The, oh, another MK thing is like, it's obvious that Gary Busey, Pete's dad is in on, he knows something's happening, but he's not mm-hmm. saying what it is ever. And he doesn't yeah. want to talk anybody to talk about what it is. Cause he's scared. Um, but the, oh, it's the other thing. Well, uh, I can't remember offhand, but anyway, like, so the, oh, the, like driving off a cliff thing, I guess is just when, oh, here. Uh, so Lynch as a conservative though, I, I think we shouldn't, we also shouldn't shy away from that because I think it gives Mm -hmm. some particular insight that wouldn't be accessible to people who aren't like in that world, at least so growing up in Montana, but more precisely Idaho, Idaho is a terrifying place. You want to talk about far, right? Like it, it almost gets no crazier in this country outside of whatever pockets in the deep South. Um, But like even Lynch's like talking about how, the right types of people were designing cars in the fifties, like all these crazy fins and all this Chrome and stuff. And then once they got computers, they figured out you could change the aerodynamics to save gas. But like, you know, the cars were like, they look like shit or whatever. They they were just boring. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not, you would never hear anyone on the left saying anything like that. It, they're too scared mm. to sound like they're for climate change or something, but he's right. He's obviously right. Like he's very obviously right that the fifties um, there was stuff. Go- like if you look at car European cars from like the sixties and seventies, they were also kind of wild. They weren't as big, but they, they had all these crazy designs. Like if you watch comedians uh, in cars, getting coffee um, Seinfeld's constantly, pulling all these weird Italian cars that were like almost one-offs that people were mm-hmm. making and America completely lost all of that. I would say after the seventies, the cars just stopped looking good at all. So I, I do think there's something to be yeah. said for some of those muscle cars, but definitely in the way that he's talking, but like what I'm getting at is he kind of like got, he gets the sort of fever pitch dimension of like Italian futurism. He even says, I'm surprised Grail Marcus didn't relate it to this, but like, there's that quote in there where he's like, people were just going as fast as they could forever. And it's like, that's literally what the futurists were arguing. And I'm not defending Italian futurism, which is clearly has links to literal fascism. I'm just saying that like, obviously there's something there. That's not simply the politics of, the aesthetics, um, which is kind of to your point, I think. Um, but you know, conservatism, that's what Leibach was doing, arguably, is like a over-identifying with a conservative position as a way to like shine to to make something else shine through, like using it as um as a canvas rather than saying it's bad and we shouldn't tarry with it. And that's what that's I think Lynch's genius um like you well we'll talk about twin peaks another time but one thing i thought about was just that opening uh in the it's not like right at the beginning but maybe it is there's a videotape of laura palmer and her friends like dancing and they're wearing their sort of sock hop outfits um and there is something ephemeral and sort of like like so profoundly mysterious about what you're watching. Cause you're watching it on television. You're watching a TV play this videotape and Lynch does that shit all the time. Um mm-hmm. And like just putting, you're basically inserting the frame into the frame itself, which is a postmodern move of sorts. But I think with Lynch, it's all it's always paced in such a particular way. And it's so scary and um erotic that mm-hmm. like something else, you know, like breaks through the veneer of like, what is to us very obvious. Like I was having a conversation with friend of the pod, Joe, and I was just noting how like I was raised by television and how like, like I never was able to really get away from that. And that's okay because I knew even as a child that, I th- I think at some level in some type of way, not in a conceptual way, but like television was the most revolutionary invention in the history of humanity. And we don't really acknowledge that in a serious way. Um, like what that does to consciousness. And then Joe was pointing out that mm-hmm. there's a Don DeLillo novel where he kind of talks about that. Like if, if we lost all this stuff, we wouldn't know what to do. (laughs) Like we we've lost like the access to whatever the fuck was before this. And um, I know I can observe that just with the difference between pre internet and now where it's like, I, I don't even know how, how did we find out about anything ever? Like, how do we find out about records or movies or something like, okay, there were trailers, but we, I guess we read magazines And we talked to Mm -hmm. our friends and somehow it, you know, that was enough. Um, I mean, besides whatever was on MTV, but like, uh, that's, I think, I think that's what Lynch is trying to deal with because the, and that's probably really without, maybe he doesn't even realize this, but that's the last, the fifties were the last moment of time before television, like. (laughs) the television right. emerged in the nineteen fifties, and it certainly defined the end of the fifties but like elvis kind Elvis was right at the moment where television existed like became a thing that people in mass were exposed to and so um it's like with Grail Marcus talks about those old folk songs in uh invisible republic where the Lomaxes were recording. They were getting the last recordings of people who'd never heard recorded music before. And that's why they're so like spooky and mysterious and terrifying and amazing is because it was just this world that we can't even, we don't, we don't have access to it's gone. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's what Lynch is sort of like, he understands that like, Perhaps at some level, that being that though that was the last moment before television became everything, before real like radio is obviously um world changing as well. But I think once you add that visual component, everything is just we're all fucked. We're all mind controlled yeah. at that point um, in a pretty direct way. And so maybe Lynch is just like, he unders if he doesn't understand that directly, he's low. He's pinpointed the moment where everything changed. um, And that we haven't never gotten away from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, at this point, I don't, I don't know if that's, still, I don't know if I would agree anymore that the fifties are still, it never ended. Um, that that's, I don't have an answer to that, but like, I think whatever period is ending right now, um, is perhaps more significant in a way. Um, I don't know why, I I, I don't know what that means Mm -hmm. or what that looks like, but I do think something is fundamentally shifting in the, in, in in as radical, I'll say this, the difference between night you know, night the post like the end of the World War Two in that post war period through now that that period is ending, whatever the fuck that is. Yeah. Um and that's the thing Lynch was I think trying to articulate in the moment as it was like you're saying as we're like riding off a fucking cliff. Now I think we're just over mm-hmm. the cliff and it's undeniable because everything's collapsing mm-hmm. literally right before our eyes. But um yeah so anyway i don't i don't have like a yeah. final word on that but sure no the um
0: i think you sort of gestured to this already but i what i really appreciated about the film viewing this time and all of david lynch's films and we again and we could discuss i don't remember we didn't do an episode of firewalk with me did we we watched yeah, yeah. it but yeah okay. w- and so we can get to that maybe in the future but i was yeah. going to say we brought this up in um or i brought it up someone did Uh, With the Kubrick film and the ways in which I think I said, oh, it's like my unconscious on the screen or something. I think that's similar here, but different with Lynch and maybe even better, to be quite honest. Not my unconscious, but it's like a dream, right? I mean, it it was that's, I think he's found a way to capture on a screen. And this is what you're getting at with your statements on television the ways in which I dream. Right, and that's that's amazing to to get to see in a conscious way and to be able to reflect on it in real time as it's happening to, staging the desire, satisfying that desire as you would hopefully get in a dream and so on. Like it's just, it was incredible at at that level as an experience. Um, And so maybe that's and by way of wrapping up on my end, I'd only note that I was watching this again. I think right, literally as uh, Robert Blake was dying, and then he died just this week or something or last week. And I had no idea at the time, yeah. But uh oh rest in peace. Sorry, go ahead. No, just rest in peace, Robert. That's all. Uh, I mean, he murdered his wife, et cetera, et cetera. But
1: yeah, that's the thing that I'm glad you brought that up because I forgot to bring up the fact that literally the guy, one of Bill Pullman's handlers in the movie, right before he kills his wife. Is the guy has killed his wife in real life? I mean, later, right. he did it later than the movie, but yeah. it's like this fucking bizarre, yeah. Um, synchronicity. So, yeah, the fact that we, I didn't not know that, or maybe, it, maybe I did hear that, but I didn't fucking put it together. Um, wow, mm-hmm. yeah, um, <laughs> right. But the, yeah, the dreams, when I say dream logic. I just literally mean the Freudian like dreams as wish fulfillment thing. Um Oh sure. And it, but you're right that like this stages that in a Yeah, yeah, perhaps a better way. Well, libidinally this is more um This is smoother libidinally than what Kubrick could ever do. I'd say that. Um mm-hmm. I don't know if one's better than the other. It's simply just like sure. Lynch is more adept at it. Let's say Lynch is maybe Lynch is better at doing it. Then rather than sure. the X movies, better than that. Y or whatever, like, is this better than the shining? I don't know. They're doing different things, but yeah, I, I right. agree with you.